Welcome to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by Joel Prusky, BMO's OIS and cross-currency trader. This week's episode is titled, Hikes Back on the Table. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep the show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. Joel, it's been three months, I think almost to the day, actually, since you uh, last joined me. And, and that was right when the Bank of Canada chose to pause. And here we are on May 31st in the afternoon, post-GDP, and we get to talk about rate hikes again. Well, Ben, thanks for having me back. You're welcome. I mean, you're the right person to bring on because you tend to be... Loud and opinionated? Well, I mean, there's that. I'm the same, so I'm not really sure. But um, on the bearish side of things from a race perspective, and so more rate hikes maybe right up your alley, perhaps? Well, I think we can look at this through a couple of lenses. Uh, one is what should the bank do? What will the bank do? Are rates restrictive enough? What does a long and variable lag mean? Oh, why don't you know? we start with some of those instead okay. of just continuing to ask sure. questions? Sure, let's do that. <laughs> I mean, I think that rates are probably sufficiently tight at the moment, but we live in a world of immediate gratification. So because XYZ came out point X higher than what the market expects, therefore the bank's not done enough. I'm not sure... I'm really in that camp. I think the higher mortgage rates are going to start to bite as renewals come in. Listen, let's be honest. Uh, what the bank's done is like uh, taking way too many edibles. You know, uh, everything's fine at the beginning. And then at some point, boom, you know, you're uh, on the floor. And I do think at some point, if the bank keeps hiking, uh, and when I say keeps hiking, I mean probably two more hikes, which is starting to be priced into the OIS market. We're, we're well over one hike now by October. I think we're up to almost uh, 480. I think at some point that's going to kick in. Some point. So I, I, I very much sympathize with that. And I think that's that's the bank's thinking at the moment, or it has been at least for the past three, four months, is uh, we've done a lot. We need to sit back and, and let this have an impact. The problem is, is the impact has not been nearly as large as you thought it would have been. And I'm, I'll, I'll repeat the line I've said for the better part of six months, is that if I asked you 12, 18 months ago, if the Bank of Canada were to raise rates 425 basis points, do you think the economy could grow at 3% in the next quarter? And I would have said, I would have laughed because I would, didn't see the world in which the bank would raise rates 425 basis points and ridiculed the asker of the question, who now, yes, it's is ridiculous in and of itself. So have they done enough? Maybe they have, but do they want to take the risk that they haven't? And I think that's part of their calculus is, do you want to take the chance that no, they haven't done enough and inflation stays stickier for longer, becomes more entrenched, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. I mean, look, I think right now, I think they all want to err on the side of not 
pulling an Arthur Burns or, or, or at least something akin to that, right? And saying, you know what? Remember, at the beginning, a slowdown, maybe even a recession, was a feature, not a bug. You know, we had a lot of people talking about this at the beginning. Go, oh, they're going to throw the economy into recession. Well, that was the idea, or at least a sufficiently slow growth to stop inflation and, and everything else. So I do think they will err on the side of tighter policies if they believe that's the case. I think it was right for them to pause, see what's going on. The numbers, some of them are slowing. I mean, inflation came out a little hot, but then the governor downplayed it and the next time he spoke. So I kind of net that out and say, yeah, well, the, you know, he said, oh, it's coming in the right direction. So I didn't think that they were that eager. I do think GDP today does move the needle because, you know, they're a model-based institution. And if growth is not slowing, therefore inflation cannot come down. And if inflation cannot come down, they probably have more to do. Yeah, that's that's my thinking exactly. And, and next week's meeting, uh, June 7, is pretty much a coin toss and and... I'm sure the bank would love to have next week's jobs reported. Maybe they will. I, I don't know. Uh, we definitely won't have the benefit of that knowledge. And, and so we're stuck with what we have. And, and it does look as though the economy's hanging in there pretty well. And you talked about the drag coming from mortgages and, and mortgage resets. And it's there. I mean, the bank really illustrated it well, I think, in their financial system review. Uh, there's some really good charts and, and, and tables in that document. And it just highlights that like there there is a drag coming there's that's going to be a headwind for growth but not right now and that's the problem and so is growth going to slow sufficiently again to to, to bring inflation down maybe over the next 2 years it will but are they willing to wait that amount of time and and it looks like the answer to that's no especially if we are reaccelerating i mean april gdp somehow the flash estimate and this is prone to revision so Maybe StatsCan just got it dead wrong, which is possible. Uh, somehow it's plus 0.2, and that's with the public sector strike probably dragging. It's, it's at least a tenth and, and could be like two to three tenths. So that means underlying growth is like three to four, if you want to push it, five tenths. And you don't, like that's really strong. You don't see a lot of months with plus 0.4, for example, in the pre-pandemic days. Like that, that's a very, very strong print. And if you have that kind of momentum and... You want to add something on top of that? Housing clearly picking up, so that that's a clear positive. I can't imagine anyone's in, in the policy world is too happy about that. Maybe rates just aren't tight enough, and people are more than happy to deal with higher rates as it is. And and bars and restaurants are still jam packed here, at least in Toronto. The rest of the country, I'm I'm more than happy to to take feedback from all the listeners out there. Uh, but people are happy to spend money, and mm -hmm. so policy. From that perspective, all three of those perspectives probably isn't tight enough. I mean, part of it is the pig isn't through the python yet. And I think we know that, right? I mean, their household balance sheets are still in good shape, right? I mean, people don't stop consuming until they start feeling the belt tightening yet. And it turns out, of course, that everything took longer than we thought. And when it happened on the rate cut side, no one minded that we kept rates way too low for way too long because we were too worried that, oh my God, it's the GFC all over again. Well... You know, why would we think it would be any different on the rate hike side? I kind of see it in the same in the same fashion. That's all. I do think the bank will err on the side of hiking rates next week because I don't know why you would wait. I, I don't know what message you give 
and say, well, we didn't do it this time, but we're going to get you next time. So you better be ready. Like, well, what is that? What message does that give to the, to the, remember, he's not talking to the traders. He's not talking to the OS trader, me, who says, oh, we're priced nine beeps out of 25 and that's uh, whatever percent. And, you know, he doesn't care about that. He wants to give the message to the guy on the street. The message was, we've done a lot of work. That's, this is going back three months. We've done a lot of work. We need some time for the rates to bite and see what the effect on the data is. That was the message three months ago. What's the message next week? I mean, I don't know, but it could well be, we've seen the data, things are still coming in a little hot. You know, may, maybe we're not where we need to get to. Well, that can be the message without raising rates. Maybe we, we want to see sure. a little bit more information before we, we push ahead with, with further hikes because they know that mortgage vulnerability is sitting there. I think they're, they're very cognizant of that. that. That's something I think that looms over all of Canada. Just kind of like a dark cloud sitting in the background. That, that's just a, a big risk. And I mean, rightly so, should be a concern. There's a reasonable question to be asked, like, how badly do you want to crush the, the mortgage holders? Like, you, like, there's a limit to that, obviously. And the more rates get pushed higher, the, the more damage will be done for all the folks that have to refinance. Well, and, if, if we want to go down that road, let's back up 20 years or so. And let's say, gee, central banks, when you claim there was 1.8% inflation and you were worried that you weren't hitting your 2% target, you managed to ignore the asset inflation the heinously gross asset inflation that happened that priced out the end and two entire generations out of the housing market. So, I mean, honestly, let's put things into perspective. I mean, they really, the house, I feel horrible for anyone between the ages of 25 and 40. They can't afford to live in most major cities in Toronto and the U.S. for that matter. So isn't there some give back due there anyways? And, you know, isn't, isn't making housing cheaper? I mean, how, how, how do you solve the housing crisis? You, you can't keep rates too low so that everyone can afford to take too much debt and own a house for too long. Isn't that Japan? Yeah, the, the housing issues here are not solvable easily. There are just too many people coming in the country given our capacity to build. It's, it, it is actually that simple. We, I, are, I get it. we are building flat out and we cannot build enough as it is. And yet immigration continues to be very strong. And so immigration is great for growth, but... It is not great for people looking to buy a house because there is is just there just aren't enough, and everyone's got to live somewhere. And even if that person coming to the country starts at the bottom, he displaces somebody, he or she displaces somebody else, and so on and so forth, and that goes up the ladder. And so whether people coming in have money either way, it, it still creates that much more housing demand. And it's not like houses are created out of thin air; they take many years to build, for better or worse, especially condos in particular. Uh, and so that that's a challenge, I don't think. And, and higher rates don't solve that, which is an interesting side of things. Uh, maybe all of this growth, maybe that April strength, maybe the first quarter 3% number, maybe that's just driven largely by population growth. Because when you have population growing at, I think in the first quarter, it was around 3%. Your per capita growth is almost zero. It looks really good on the headline. But maybe it's not quite as strong as it actually looks, and maybe it's not building inflation pressures at all. And uh, that, that's an angle I think that's important to consider when looking at Canada. And, and that, that's maybe one reason why the bank might want to wait a little bit and see if, if uh, it's, it's more driven by that aspect of things than, than just outright strength and demand. Uh, the, the consumer spending was, was quite strong in the quarter. There were some areas of weakness. Business investment was quite soft. Uh, I can't imagine with investment kind of softening again for, for the latest quarter, uh, you're going to have a consistently strong appetite to hire. We've seen vacancies come down. Uh, some of the job numbers have softened. The uh, survey of employment payrolls and hours 
which comes with a two-month delay, but that was negative for March, yeah. and we had insolvencies for businesses and consumers go up in March. So it, as, as good as the GDP numbers were, it's not unambiguous that the economy is really, really, really strong. Uh, I think there, there's still enough question marks there that they can say, yeah, if this continues, we, we might need to go. But for now, we're okay for now. And for now, six weeks. Right. I could see them buying. I could see them buying six more weeks. And to be honest, uh, if you look at the July meeting, it's pretty much fully priced anyways for that. So I don't know, I don't know if there's a trade there because ultimately we're going to come back to what's the trade. And I know you had Chris on a little while ago. And I would say, you know, the levels are not significantly different from before. And, you know, somehow we have rates 50 weeks below the U.S. And by next September, we're almost 60 above the U.S. And I find that that is a little bit uh, inconsistent and unlikely and unlikely to happen. And and, uh, so I do think I do think there's a trade there. I think with us fully priced for the hike, and whether the hike comes in June or July, we are kind of there, unless you think the bank has to restart a campaign, a serious campaign, and get us back to, let's say, five and a half, six percent. Well, that, that so that begs the question, is one hike enough? Does 25 basis points even matter? And I had this conversation with Darren a, a few episodes ago, and 25 beeps on its own, I'm skeptical, matters all that much, and will move the needle for people. Uh, especially just because it's one meeting, and then you pause again, and you've signaled again that you're pausing, and that, that sentiment definitely helps boost people, uh, I think. And and 50 beeps probably matters a fair amount more. Also puts you at 5%, which I think psychologically is is not insignificant. That would be uh, the highest since the 90s, I think, without looking at any charts. Also, the uh, curves, remember, the curves very inverted. So five-year mortgage rates aren't as high as, let's say, in previous cycles when you were hiking rates, the curve did not get as inverted, which means, you know, uh, consumer actual borrowing rates were higher relative to yep. overnight. So there is a bit of that going on. Maybe more, one more reason to maybe push a little bit further. And and if it if it lifts the whole curve and, and pushes mortgage rates higher, that, that would be notable. One of the things that is driving that that Canada-US spread, though, is the fact that homeowners or, or new homeowners, new home buyers are looking more at shorter term mortgages at two and three year fixed mortgages instead of a five year because the assumption is rates will come down in the interim period. And they take a, a maybe slightly higher rate for that shorter term. And that in turn prompts banks to, to pay the two-year, three-year part of the swap curve, which then pushes swap spreads higher, which then pushes that one-year, one-year or whatever, any, anything out there that, that Canada-US spread uh, make, makes Canada look cheaper maybe than otherwise would. And, and that pressure might persist. Like I, I don't know why anyone's going to move out the mortgage curve at this point, uh, especially if rates are going even higher. Uh, that that's not the time to move further out the curve. Anything they'll, they'll shorten up even more. Well, there there is also a recency bias going on where everyone believes at some point we're going to have some blow up and the Fed's going to have to cut rates to zero and the bank can like that whole psychology of you know somehow zero or 0.5 is the normal rate and we're in the unnatural period and I, and I I really don't think that that's the case. I think we're probably moving to a new era where two percent is the new zero percent. So 2% is the new floor and maybe five is the new high. Uh, and, you know, we're going to be in a different market over the next 20 years compared to the last 20 years. Okay. So then uh, that that brings me to my next question for you, I guess. Uh, long, I mean, if, if two is the bottom, which, by the way, I kind of-ish agree with, what does that mean for 10-year rates? What does that mean for 30-year rates? You'd have to talk to someone who's owned a 10 or 30-year bond in the last 25 years. I'm sure you've owned some, not outright though. <laughs> Where should I mean how how much do rates need to back up here 
and and how much term premium is going to be needed if inflation ends up being stickier. I mean, I think there's a, a good case, and I've made this case many times and will continue to do so, that inflation will be structurally higher for the next whatever number of years. I, I don't know how many because things do change over time, but call it five to seven years at least, uh, and if not longer. And if, if inflation is structurally higher and, and two is the bottom for inflation, give or take, uh, how much more term premium do we need in 10-year, in 30-year rates and the whole curve? Well, I think part of that going to depend on, you know, how big deficits are run and, you know, what's going on in the rest of the world and need, you know, demand for capital and things like that. Like, I do think you're getting crowding out going on in the U.S. You have huge budget deficits, you have entitlements, you know, you have the boomers all starting to retire. I mean, there's going to be competition for dollars out there and you're going to, you're in a multipolar world as well that at some point will draw dollars away from the United States. I'm not calling for the big dollar crash at some point, but at some, you know, but at realistically, the world has changed from what it was three to four years ago. It's a different world. And that I think also has term premium implications. That is going to be a challenge for sure. Uh, but like Canada, Canada, 10 year rates at three or 18 at this moment, longs are slightly inverted there. Uh, if inflation's closer to two and a half percent on average over a kind of a medium term period of time or three and a or three percent, like you're looking at really low real yields. Uh, I mean, they've that, been they've been there before. I just don't I just think, you know, there's a shift going on that's going to cause that to change over time, but it happens slowly. It just means, you know, every time we get rally, it's a higher low in yields, you know, all, all the time and things like that. I mean, remember, most of the market's made up of, there's a group of real money, uh, pension fund type guys, and there's a group of degenerate gamblers. And the- Which category are you in? <laughs> well, I've got a pension fund. Um <laughs> But, you know, at times the flows from one or the other can dominate so much that things move off of what I would say is fair value or reasonable value because of, you know, everyone wants to be in the trade or stop losses or whatever. I mean, we've seen this, you know, used to happen in, our, in once every two years or once every year. Now it seems to happen once every six weeks because there's even more degenerates than there used to be. So, you know, when, when you want to look at macro versus micro, I think you really have to, you know, pull your lens back a little bit. And, and I, I'm with you. I think... We're going to have greenflation. We're going to have onshoring. We're going to have things that are that we need to do to, to or we want to do. And there seems to be consensus, uh, even on both parties, about what needs to get done going forward. And these things are going to cost more money. So unless there's a huge productivity gain, and maybe there is, maybe the, this whole AI stuff causes a huge productivity gain. Without without that, initially, I think the pressures on inflation to stay high. And then, yeah, ultimately, it means... Uh, even, even in that case, rates go higher because real growth accelerating means generally higher rates, at least in theory. Uh, and we'll, we'll see about practice on that. Um, one, you, you mentioned, I just need to go on a slight tangent for four seconds here. Uh, you mentioned U.S. budget deficits. We're in the midst of the, the debt ceiling ridiculousness. It should be done hopefully today. Uh, and everything gets passed, assuming everything goes according to plan. But it, the, the part that amazes me in all of this is the complete and total lack of narrative around how ridiculously huge the budget deficit is when the economy is at full capacity, if not beyond. The unemployment rate is the lowest it's been in 40, 50 years, and nobody says a word. Like the, the, the cheers are overholding a portion of the budget spending flat. Right. Not all of it, just a portion of it, because 
higher rates equals higher interest costs. And there's also entitlement spending and all that kind of stuff that's only going one way, which is up. And no one says a word about any of this stuff. And it's uh, running at about 7% of GDP in the US. And like, that's insane. And both parties, because both parties are spend parties now anyways, right? It's crazy. And, and like, they make Canada look good, right. which is ridiculous because I, I mean, it, it's painful for me to say that because we spend way too much money here as well. And the hiring spree the federal government's gone on is, is like, it, it, I mean, crazy how federal government employment has gone up as, as quickly as it has in the past four or five years. And they make us look good. Uh, I mean, all all you can really do is shake your head and and wonder at some point, like that has to be a big headwind for the U.S. at some point, doesn't it? Like at some point, they're going to have to at least shrink that to some extent. That is a huge headwind for growth whenever that time comes. And it'll be, you know, it'll be when some disaster strikes, right? That's That's what it'll have to be, right? That's the worst part. It won't won't be of their own accord. There's not enough political will to get it done. And both parties are are spend parties. One's a tax and spend and one is just a spend. The the only hope, I guess, maybe is is if inflation stays high enough for long enough and they can kind of hold the line on nominal spending, maybe it whittles away as a share of GDP and just stays in the whatever one and a half trillion dollar range. And uh, one and a half trillion is just worth less. But sure, but that's just whack-a-mole, right? Because you've just you, you've created one problem at the expense of another problem, yep. right? Because now we're talking about keeping inflation structurally high at say three and a half percent, let's say. Right? Well, it does solve some of their problem if <laughs> yeah. you have structurally higher inflation. That's the the only people that benefit to some extent are are the uh, are, are the debtors, uh, such as life. One of the other things I've been I've been talking about is. Uh, we both agree that inflation is going to be structurally higher on the kind of a secular basis. What do you think about my idea that central banks will still be able to get inflation down to close to 2%, I would say, at some point? It'll hit it uh, on, a, on a cyclical basis. I know your love for central bankers uh, is, is profound. Probably have to put the economy into recession. I mean, that's kind of what it looks like, but I'm, I'm, I don't think we're quite there yet. But are, do they have the will to get there. Do they have the will to get inflation down to 2%? Yes. I think initially they do. I mean, if- On a cyclical it, basis, not on a yeah, consistent basis. I think, I think initially they do. You know, I think everyone was happy if if, employ- if unemployment went up 1% or 1.5% and that took the froth off things and wage demands went down and it didn't go crazy like that. I think everyone would be happy with that. The problem is once it goes from there, generally it doesn't stop. And then, it, then you're talking, oh, three percentage points. Oh, wait a minute, now- you know, it's taken the U.S. Millions of people start to lose their job. Well, that's a problem. You know, like if if two hundred fifty thousand people lose their job, okay, it's not so great, but it's not terrible. But if two and a half million do, well, then you got a problem. So, and and you know, you've got this uh, this tribal political situation there, which just makes things worse and worse. So, you know. And I mean, we don't have independent central banks. Let's be honest. I mean, that's a, that's the biggest joke I've heard. We've had an intra central bank since. I started in this business 36 oh. years ago tomorrow. You know. <laughs> I wasn't going to comment on that part. Uh, I won't comment on the independent central banks either. But uh, I mean, it, it, you, you sound like you at least have faith they can get there in the short run. Uh, but then it, it is a problem. Like if, if 2% is the low in the cycle and the economy has 2 percentage point higher unemployment at that point or whatever it is, if that's the low in inflation when the economy is also at its weakest point, what happens when the economy reaccelerates? It's going to be a very challenging situation to keep inflation at you. Like you're not going to be able to. You won't be able to keep inflation at two percent. That simple. No, uh, when the economy is going up, change their target. But well, their target. The, I mean, the, the, the more 
what do they say that the more he doth protest, the faster I counted the spoons? I mean, that's what's going on right now. Oh no, we're there, there's no question about changing our inflation target right right now. Of course, not right now. There is no question of it. But at some point, if that's the case, if you can't make the facts fit, then you just change them. So, but that, I, I think that's like macro and that's long-term, like we're talking- Far enough away. I think that's three to five years away if that's the case. Because if, if structurally inflation is three to three and a half percent and the trade-off is 7% unemployment, then we'll just have to live with three and a half percent inflation. Yeah, that's fair. It's what we can't live with is 7% or, or 8%. But, you know, why did they t- pick 2% when they pick 2%? I don't know. It was thought of as the right number. Right yeah, I, I can give you lots of reasons, but they're too boring to go okay. through on air. And okay. it's already been 20 minutes, so I, I, won't, I won't bore everybody. Uh, there are there are specific reasons, but it's as low as you can go without creating problems. That's that's the basic part of it. But um, since we are 20 plus minutes in here, let's. Uh, you like that Canada-U.S. trade, even though I think there's the, I don't I don't think there's a catalyst to get it to move very near term. No, I, I no, I don't think so either. I mean, I, I always think you're one weak Canadian data point away from that gapping twenty beeps. But I do think as we're close to minus sixty now. Like I just think from a from a it, it carries beautifully. I mean, another trade we are looking at is, and this is probably a little esoteric for some, but if you look at where the greens are in Canada which we all know don't trade. Anyone who listens to this know they don't trade. But the implied greens are are 18 beeps uh, inverted. So each next contract is 18 beeps higher in price, lower in yield than the previous one. In the US, those spreads are one or, or minus one. So all the rate froth in Canada, in theory, kind of looks, gets pushed out to the greens, where in the US it's the red. So I think the trade to put on is stuff like two-year, one-year Canada-US versus, let's say, one-year, one-year Canada-US. And take advantage of the fact that the three-year point is a bit out of whack relative to the US, relative to what the reds are saying. You know, So it, you know, if you want a less delta-ish trade, right, where, where I think the pure, let's say, SEP uh, COFERS uh, at 60 you know, you can get rocked around a little bit. I think if you do the two-year, one-year versus the SEP Kofers, I think maybe you have a, a much better trade there. So that's one trade uh, that I like. I guess uh, other trades uh, we can talk about are um, more in the cross-currency space. You know, there's a lot of disjointed stuff in the front end. We've moved over to Cora uh, versus Sofer, uh, which is great because uh, BA Sofer was kind of a, you know, a bastard product. And, you know, the flows are really dominating the prices in any sector because guys are just quote and cover, quote and cover, and don't really take much risk. So you've got some really weird things like uh, the front end is super negative. Uh, The three month is more negative in Canada than any other currency, especially relative to the one year. So you've got some weird stuff there. You've got things like, uh, you know, uh, forwards all out of whack. So for those who listen and care, you know, we like receiving two year, one year, either outright or by pay versus paying things like six year, one year, seven year, one year. Uh, we like uh, paying 10 year, five year. It got out to minus 40. That's just way too low, especially to, th- to things like three year, two year, which is uh, also close to zero. Um, but, you know, I think the audience for that is probably fairly limited. But if you're listening, call me. All right. We'll talk. There's clearly lots of opportunity. Well, what's going on here, what I feel has happened over the last three years and really been going on for the last 15 is all the risk takings moved to the fast money side of the street. And what's left with the dealers are just quote and cover, hot potato, everything. And because of that, you get a lot of micro things happen that happen because no one wants to hold risk or can hold risk or whatever the reason they want to tell you. 
So that, that drives opportunity in Corsofer uh, and, and or in everything that in, in in meeting yeah. gaps in markets. I mean, we we see it all the time, right? It's like a flow comes in, you know, maybe it's non comp and the dealer just doesn't want it. He pukes it out, or maybe it is comp and all of a sudden everyone gets spooked because of the flow. But nonetheless, like especially in things like Corsofer, like there, there's underlying assumptions you can make about you know carry and roll and curve shapes that make things easier. Like whether the bank goes or not, okay, that's like an outright delta decision. They either they're going to go. And you'll make you know seventeen, or they're not going to go. You'll lose eight. But the, some of this other uh, course over stuff. I mean, it's really low hanging fruit, and there's a lot of great trades to be done out there. All right, let's uh, leave it there, Joel. Thanks as usual. I love chatting with you, and I'm sure I'll, I'll have you on again soon. I look forward to it, Benny. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian Rates and Macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.